Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the episode that uh, I've been looking forward to for a long time. Have my hero back on the show, Robert Sapolsky, uh, my favorite scientist. That there is uh, just a wonderful human being, incredible work. I had him on for the first time in episode 22 of this show about five years ago, if you want to go and check that out. On my other podcast, Mind Under Matter, my comedy and philosophy show with my good friend Vermeer Nazer, we blabbed about uh, his work um, for an extended period of time recently on episode 42, Behaviors Past. If you're interested in hearing us riff more about some of the things that we talk about at the very beginning of this uh, podcast. And at the end of this show, I'm going to give you um, just a little bit of a Robert Sapolsky starter kit. If you're if you're new to him, where to go, uh, what books you might want to check out, classes, etc. A few other things as well. Uh, great guy. Also has kind of a loud dog in his house. A little bit of a loud dog. Uh, my, my editor, Matt, uh, worked triple time on this one to clean up the sound, uh, a a little bit and, and, uh, get rid of, uh, doggy noises. It's, it's not bad, but it it pops up here and there for a couple seconds for all you audiophiles out there. But uh, just know that we, uh, worked extra hard to, uh, to make this as, uh, uh, the best sounding product uh, that was possible. And uh, if, if you, you know, about 98% of our, of our, uh, of the consumers of this podcast are listening on audio only. But if you ever have questions, comments, anything like that, you can go to our little YouTube channel that I started during COVID uh, with this and, and ask a comment uh, recommend scientists or topics or even follow-up questions for Robert for the next time that I have him back on, which will be sooner than um, the five years ago, the last time that I had him on, I assure you. I just generally don't <laughs> like bothering uh, the guy and and uh, get intimidated by my idols, quite frankly. But uh, we keep up, so I'll have him back on much sooner. And I just hope you enjoy uh, today's episode. And it's it was a thrill. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We have a very special episode for you. If you listen to this show regularly, you've heard uh, you've heard my guest today probably referenced more than any other scientist on the show, not just by me, but by a bunch of other scientist guests that I have on. Robert Sapolsky is joining us today. Hello, Robert. Hi, Shane. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Um, can you introduce yourself to the listeners, those of you that didn't, those that didn't hear you on the show three years ago and may not already be familiar with your work? 
Let's see. Uh, um, my name is Robert Sapolsky. I'm a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. Uh, over the years, I've sort of alternated between doing laboratory neuroscience and uh, studying populations of baboons in East Africa. So I'm kind of a primatologist also. Nice. And everyone, the, the a classic book you may have heard referenced on here is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. You can also check out the book Behave, which is in it's not in good shape on on my end. I've had a I've had a couple goes at it. Um, fantastic nice book. Yeah, <laughs> um, check it out. It's an amazing book. I wanted to have you on um, because I was. This show's rather loose, and we can take the conversation anywhere um, that we like. But I was especially interested in um, talking about learned helplessness and what learned helplessness is. And then I also, toward the end of the show, I want to kind of get to some of your uh, recent work in the, the new book that you're working on as well. But I so I didn't know the best way that you wanted to set that up. I didn't know if also if you thought there would be time to kind of explain um and if it's relevant uh specifically to this to explain kind of the buckets and thinking about things from one second before all the way back through evolutionary time or uh, however however you want to set up learned helplessness it's uh i think it's an especially important topic right now uh yeah sure is two years into this well um Thank you for prompting my inevitable song and dance in terms of <laughs> making sense of behavior. You know, if you want to understand why somebody did something, there's no gene that's going to explain everything. There's no part of the brain that's going to explain everything. There's no hormone. There's no early childhood experience, whatever. Instead, there's a gazillion different components. And what seems like a very basic, logical way to view how the universe works why did something happen because of what happened just before? And why did that happen because of what happened just before a deterministic world? Um, you look at somebody who's just done a behavior, it's wonderful, it's horrible, it's in between, and you're wondering why they did it. And you've got to factor in what happened in the second before, which parts of the brain activated, which you have to factor in what's been happening in the minutes before. Is the person tired? Are they in pain? Are they hungry? Are they smelling something disgusting? Are they, what sensory cues? Then you gotta like ask what's happening in the hours to days before hormone levels. What do your levels of whatever in your bloodstream this morning have to do with how sensitive your brain is going to be to this or that stimulus? Then back years to decades, how trauma, stimulation, enrichment, all sorts of things, major depression, so on, can actually change the structure of your brain, the function of your brain, so that what you do in this one second decision is reflecting that. And then you're often running back to adolescence and childhood and fetal life, where fetal environment, how stressed mom is, for example, and thus how much of her stress hormones you're developing brain is being soaked in. 
all of those are influencing how that brain of yours is being constructed back to genes. They play a role amazingly back to culture. Like what, what your ancestors were up to 400 years ago will have had something to do with how you were parented within minutes of birth. And that's bizarrely influential. And then, you know, back millions of years, why we evolved into being us instead of into redwood trees or something. Basically, what you see is if you want to understand where behavior is coming from, everything that came before is what's responsible, which seems intuitively obvious. Yeah, nothing comes from nothing until you sort of work through all the implications of that. We are nothing more or less than the biology, which we've had no control over, that's brought us to this moment, and the environment that that biology has interacted with that's brought us to this moment. Um, so that's, that's my that's my basic view about how like it's all biological and that's not a trivial statement yeah well uh, so so basically your message is it's all very simple (laughs) and we have it all figured out (laughs) Uh, so could you could you tell people what learned helplessness is and and explain um some of the is I, I'm sure anyone that's listened to me on other podcasts and things like that has heard me um, butcher some of your work. So uh, I would I would love to have your take on it. Well, learned helplessness is this concept that goes back decades. A guy named Martin Seligman, University of Pennsylvania, sort of pioneered this. So depression. You look at depression. How does one think about depression? You could think of it as a genetic disorder. There's genes that predispose you to it. It could be viewed as a neurochemical disorder. It could be viewed much more intuitively for most of us. It's a disease of screwy emotions. You don't feel pleasure. You don't feel anticipation. You perseverate on negative affect. That's the jargon of the field. And all along, there's been another angle, which is to think of depression as a disorder of abnormal thought. And this took everyone by surprise. Um, This was a view that sort of snuck in through the back door in the realm of sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's this whole notion that in addition to weird emotions, all of that, you think about the world differently. You see glasses that are half full as being entirely empty. You see lack of efficacy where there actually is efficacy. You see interpretations at every possible turn that you have no control, you know, predictability, no outlets, you're hopeless, you're helpless. And this is what depression is about cognitively. And when you look at it, like some of the nuts and bolts stuff that goes wrong in the brain and depression has to do with more brainy cerebral regions. And you give people like tests to flash up a positive word, party, funeral, party, back and forth. Which one do you remember more? And if you're depressed, depressive history, you remember the funeral word. You're all sorts of ways in which your brain is tilted to decide that you have much less control over what's going on than you actually do. So a great way of framing that and what this whole concept is, is you have in effect learned that you are helpless. 
And Mm -hmm. this was originally shown with lab animals and, you know, the nuts and bolts work the exact same way on us. What is learned helplessness about? You get some situation where something's awful happening, something stressful, something traumatic. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. This is reality, all of that. And it ends. And with any luck, what you conclude afterward is, well, that was awful, but it's over with. That was that. That's not the entire universe. And what happens with learned helplessness is you just overgeneralize. That one event, that one trauma, that one failure, or that childhood filled with trauma and failure, whatever, those experiences were not just then. That's what it always is. Wherever I look, wherever I go, I'm going to have no control, no predictability. I am hopeless and I'm hopeless in regard to that. So in that realm, that's just a weird way of thinking. Um, It's a cognitive distortion. What happened when happened when. But the distortion is deciding that that's inevitably it's going to be forever everywhere you look. So that is sort of where learned helplessness fits into a picture of depression. I love that idea of I I catch myself overgeneralizing quite a bit. I I see my mind make grand leaps from I I had I had trouble uh you know I I didn't get to the post office today like I like I said I was going to and it goes from something tiny like that huge like now i'm thinking of all the other times i didn't go to the post office now all of the other times i've failed myself at all of these and now it's a part of my identity i'm someone who doesn't deliver packages properly when i'm supposed to not to mention doesn't deliver love and responsibility (laughs) yeah and you're off and running and overgeneralizing you got an experience that was awful but If you're resilient, if you are lucky enough to have the biology of resilience, you've built a wall around it. Hmm. And if you're not, it just oozes out in every possible direction. I I have. I started last year a second podcast called Mind Under Matter with me and a comic friend, um, philosophical and and comedy podcast. And we've often joked about how um, how how the 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 brain sometimes the 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 lawyers for the um i'm a failure or i can't do it side of your brain are all wearing suits and just the crack team of of compiling mounds and mounds of evidence and then the positive uh, i can do it part of the brain is just throwing paper airplanes and spitballs and yep. doesn't have their case together. <laughs> yep. And is, is there, would you say that there's some evolutionary underpinnings with that going on as well with, with some of the kind of error management um, stuff of negativity bias? Yeah. And- um, there's this whole realm like evolutionary psychologists, psychologists show things like, Um, If you have two options, a positive interpretation of something or a negative, and all things being equal, people are coming up about 50-50, stress people, time pressure them, whatever, and the default is the negative one. You get people during periods of stress, 
and you were much, much more moved in the direction of protecting your assets so that you don't lose them rather than doing what you need to do to acquire more of them. You get this sort of negativity bias. You are much, much better. You and every human and non-human primate that's been tested with in figuring out has somebody broken a social contract? Has somebody broken a social contract by being nicer than they were supposed to be? Or have they broken it by being lousier than we're supposed to be? And the more convoluted and complicated the story is, everybody has trouble figuring out whether the person actually carried through their promise. We're much better at picking up the violations that go in the bad direction. We just sort of have this cognitive gamble that we seemingly have evolved for, which is to often be better safe than sorry. And when we're stressed, just really tilting in that direction. Hmm. Um, what about, what have you seen any of that work? Sometimes I, I've seen people speculate that, um, that what some people consider uh, that it, basically that depressed people sometimes view some aspects of life more accurately. And it, 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 I, I never know what to make of, of some of that when I hear it, because, because I, I had a very um, wholesome Midwestern upbringing where just every house you go into, the walls are just covered in platitudes and, and things. <laughs> and every, everyone's cheery, wholesome Midwestern. It's not as much as it was 30 years ago or whatever. But um, I, I just, it just never resonated <laughs> with me. And so, so when I first heard some of that work, I was like, maybe I'm just seeing things more clearly. And that's why I feel this way. And then, and then there's other times where I can absolutely tell that. And, and I see in others where uh, just the, the feeling of depression and hopelessness is delusional. It's, it's not, it's not representative of reality. Well, glad, glad to hear you uh, citing the, the neurobiology of Garrison Keillor and all the consequences of that. Yeah, you bring up what seems like a total contradiction. Okay, depression's about emotions and brain chemistry and genes and all of that. But as we just went over, it's a disorder of distorted thinking. You see things mm -hmm. as being more negative than the actual distorted thinking, inaccurate thinking. Yet, there's the soundbite that you bring up that in some domains, people with depression are actually more accurate assessors of what's going on. They're more cognitively correct rather than being distorted. Okay, so these are completely mutually contradictory, but they're not. When are people with depression really, really bad at seeing reality for what it is when it concerns them? And when it's emotionally heavy duty and it's salient, when are they very, very good at seeing the world for what it is when it's some detached issue off at a distance? And what that taps into is people and like cross-cultural studies show like Americans out the wazoo have this optimism bias under the right circum. The, the average person thinks they're above average at whatever it is you name them at. And depressed people, as long as it's something that's not emotionally like boiling the surface for their own personal concerns, they're much more accurate because they don't do this rationalizing. And they could say, no, 
actually, they're going to lose. No, actually, that's a horrible idea. No, and so they give very good advice while not taking it in the slightest for themselves. So it's not, <laughs> it's not actually a paradox. Interesting, similar sort of thing. There's a part of the frontal cortex. It's called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And when it's damaged, you have trouble regulating your behavior. You do impulsive, stupid things. And you have terrible judgments about stuff. But if somebody is asking you about what somebody else should do, what their appropriate behavior is, you're totally great. As long as these things don't have much emotional turmoil thrown in with it, you can sustain this brain damage. You can sustain major depression. And like, you're fine. You're even better than fine because you're not falling for the, like, everybody can be president stuff. But as soon as it gets close to home, that's where things go off the rails. Hmm. Um, could we, could you maybe set up some of the, the major players in, in stress, just generally the idea of, uh, kind of, a lack of predictability and lack of control and you you say give a rat one or the other and it's stressful but they're okay but to the kind of learn helplessness it's the absence of both of these things okay so like most of us are not being stressed by like dysentery or rampaging warlords or being chased by predators you know, westernized humans mostly generate psychosocial stress, which is to say you're getting stressed, you're turning on a stress response for reasons that like 99% of animals out there, it would make no sense to them whatsoever because it's not a short-term physical crisis. It's traffic jams every day. It's relationship problems. It's abusive bosses. It's worrying about like mortality and global warming and all the stuff that makes no sense at all to like your normal vertebrate out there. In other words, sort of the key thing about humans and stress is we turn on the same stress response as every other vertebrate out there, same hormones, exactly the same circuitry, but we don't turn it on because a lion is chasing us. We're turning it on because we're reading a scary part of a novel or because we're thinking about something that happened to us decades ago. What we're good at is generating psychological stress. So insofar as that doesn't involve like hemorrhaging because somebody's claws have ripped you open or, or some such physical reality, what is it that makes psychological stress stressful? And there turn out to be some very, very clear building blocks, as you sort of alluded to, for the same exact external reality that's making you miserable. Frequently, it's less stressful if you get some predictability. When is it coming? How bad is it going to be? How long is it going to last? So you take rats or monkeys or freshman college student volunteers, and they get unpredictable shocks now and then, and you get a stress response, and have a little warning light go on five seconds before each shock, and you don't get the stress response. You've got the predictability have the same external misery going on. And if you feel like you have some sense of control over it, 
that often can be very protective. People in these studies are sitting there pounding away on buttons that are disconnected, that are not doing anything at all. But if they've been trained to think that this button is decreasing shock frequency, they're much less stressed. Just imagine how much worse it could have been if I didn't have some control. If you interpret the same external event as evidence that things are getting worse, you're going to have more of a stress response and be more vulnerable for stress-related disease. If you don't have outlets, give a lab rat like a bar of wood to gnaw on with its teeth when it's getting intermittent unpredictable shocks and it doesn't have the stress response it would be having if it didn't have this outlet. And, you know, we all have the exact same thing going on in us. Finally, like probably the biggest variable is social support, social affiliation. Like, and this comes down to like studies, even as like stupidly straightforward as like somebody is sitting there and having an unpleasant medical thing done to their veins or something, and their blood pressure goes up and they secrete stress hormones. But if they're sitting there holding the hand of a loved one, you don't get as much of a response to that. I mean, that's just like one tiny building block. So what's psychological stress about? It's lack of controls, lack of predictability, it's lack of outlets, it's deciding that everything means it's getting worse and you're going to be helpless forever and you got nobody's shoulder to lean on. And these are incredibly powerful variables when you get organisms like us that get stress-related diseases because we think about stuff instead of like running away from predators. Hmm. Have you, are you familiar with, um, Jamie Pennebaker yep. at all? Yeah. And I've, his, his book, uh, the secret life of pronouns. I've, I, it stuck with me. I had him on the show years ago. And, and one of the things that blew me away is he, he taking algorithms and looking through people's tweets. One of the things that, that was interesting was he, he took, uh, dark poets and had an algorithm analyze it and predict half of them had killed themselves half of them hadn't and and he had the algorithm predict which ones killed themselves quite uh, quite accurately wow. and one of the big um one of the big differences was the use of the word i so uh, mm. so the the ones that killed themselves would refer to themselves quite a bit it'd be a lot of i and me and those sorts of things, whereas the other dark poets were talking more existential about more generally about life and us and and one of the one of the potential um, uh, actionable uh, things about knowing this is is I, I believe some therapists are trained if they have a client that they notice saying I quite a bit, have them be like, well, how does that? how do you think it makes this person feel? Or if they're only complaining about the other person having them say, well, how does that make you feel you feel? And so there's some, something about toggling between the introspective and, and kind of thinking about others that, that creates a more holistic picture and seems to lead to better um, mental health and in individuals. So 
Absolutely. I mean, if you ask somebody, so what have the two last two years been about? And they say, well, this is this very distressing xenobiotic pathogen that has caused a pandemic and has enormous public health and economic consequences. Or you say, so what has the last two years been about? I wake up every morning wondering if today is the day I'm going to drown from fluids in my lungs. Mm-hmm. You know, those are two very different takes on what this is about. Um, you know, reducing it to one of these building blocks, and this one sounds like this this should be in a doily and every, like, you know, up there in Minnesota kind of thing. Um, you look at non-human primates, they spend a lot of time socially grooming. It's like this social gossip connectiveness thing, and they do it after a scare with a predator. They do... And you keep track of how much each animal is involved in the grooming relationship. And it turns out more grooming is associated with lower stress hormone levels. The better predictor is not how much any individual is being groomed. It's how much they are grooming someone else. So some sort of macaque monkey equivalent of getting out of your head, even in terms of, you know, giving comfort rather than pulling on it, yeah, we get lost in our heads very readily. I mean, one of the classic sound bites about depression is it's aggression turned inward, just all the stuff going on inside. And whether it's going on inside, I failed and I'm always going to fail, or what's going on inside is, oh my God, did that mild cough just now mean the flu is you're building up in my left lung? In either case, you're stuck inside your head, and that's often not a very comforting place. Hmm. I, I I'm wondering if um, if you could talk a little bit about what the last couple of years have been like for you in terms of what what of some aspects of your work have uh, have seemed the most relevant to everything that's happened during the pandemic? Well, certainly psychological stress, uh, like go figure. And there's just tsunamis now of anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, mood disorders that are just like overwhelming mental health capacities in this country. Um, Long neglected, blah, blah. Um, So yeah, obviously psychological stress. But probably the most interesting aspect of it is those sort of the behavioral consequences of this sort of stress. And deep psychological stress during this period and lack of control, predictability, et cetera, et cetera. And the most screwed up form of socialization that we could possibly get as social primates, you spend two years during this terrifying, isolating time trying to figure out why the sound is off on your Zoom connection and who you forgot to unmute kind of thing. <laughs> That's going to be your basis of feeling, you know, we are the world kind of connectedness. So that's been done in. But I think what's been most interesting is you see with chronic stress, your memory gets bad and you're more depressive and you're more anxious and you have trouble making judgments and you have trouble regulating your impulses. But what really goes down the tubes is you have trouble being empathic about other people and other people who are very different from you. Stress like 
24 straight months of it takes people and it causes a tunnel vision about as to who counts as an us and whose perspective you are able to take. And even when you're watching somebody in pain, what parts of your brain activate and respond? Well, it depends on who they are. It depends whether they look like someone like me, all this modulatory stuff. And it gets mighty hard to like walk in somebody else's shoes during periods of severe stress. And, you know, that's what the last two years have been about. I mean, I'm sure like everyone had that like nostalgia now for the first like two hours or two weeks of the pandemic of saying, whoa, this is awful, but the whole world is going through this. We're all in this together. And then what we quickly saw was, no, we're not all in this together. If you are (laughs) of the wrong socioeconomic status, if you were the wrong religious or racial or ethnic outgroup, you're going to be feeling that pandemic 10 times worse than the people who could sit at home and work remotely and like Zoom with their loved ones. This has been like one amazing exercise in parochialism, which is to say narrowing your concerns only to whoever counts as an us and being less empathic and more selfish and you know, every frontline worker has shown us the times like this could bring out the most amazing in humans. But what stress mostly does is bring out the worst in us. And that mm-hmm. sure has weighed on me in these last two years watching just how awful this has been. Yeah, I just had an ER doc on the show and asked him how he was doing and everything. And he was just like, I don't. This is no longer a life passion of mine. It's just a job that I go in and do, and I just don't have the capacity to care anymore about, you know, I do a good job and I, I, I do what I'm supposed to do, but it's no longer this dream that I was pursuing and a yeah. sense of pride and fulfillment and everything and just run down. And that's everything related to... Uh, the pandemic changed what it was caused by. Just to like artificially dichotomize, for the first year, it was an infectious disease disorder. It was an infectious disease crisis. Um, mm-hmm. Ever since the vaccines have come out, it's been a crisis of societal dysfunction. It's been a human-made crisis. It's not caused by, oh my God, this has been a 10-year project to come up with vaccines. It could have been done at the end of 2020, early 2021. And the fact that it has gone on in many ways has been worse since then, it's got nothing to do with viral mutation rates. It's human cause. And I think for the like frontline people, you know, in the early months or whatever, they're sitting there saying, we're working around the clock. Um, this could very readily kill me because it's killing all sorts of medical people. I can't see my loved ones because I don't want to get them infected. But this is what I trained for. This is what this is going to be the most awful stretch of my life. But we're going to hold on until they come up with the vaccine. That's what we and we did. We made it there. You made it. And then, God damn it, it's all of it all over again. All of that mm-hmm. that we spent a year sacrificing for turned out to be nothing because of these idiots who turned this into a disease of social dysfunction. 
And mm-hmm. yeah, that's incredibly devastating. Or maybe another way of stating that is they spent the first year having a sense of control. If I just work around the clock and intubate people and check and check and more and more careful, and so I can get some sort of control, if not on the planet, at least over this person dying in my ICU. And then it turns out you had no control at all because all sorts of people decide the disease is a myth or mm-hmm. vaccines are containing contraceptives or God knows what, you know, urban myths are going into anti-vaxxers. And I've heard no, them all. I thought I had control over this as long as I worked as hard as I ever have in my life. And it turned out that I didn't. And that's exactly why why this guest of yours is in the state of mind you describe. Yeah. Um, could we, I, I think we mentioned this the first time that you were on years ago, but I, I find it's pretty relevant right now. Could we, could we talk about, um, disgust priming a little bit? Like the, uh, I, I, I'm always quick to regurgitate the, the rotten smell, um, and social values tests is, is one that's always stuck with me. It's irresistible. Um, yeah. Okay, this is one of my favorite all-time studies. You take someone, there's this part of the brain, this obscure part of the brain, let me wait out the dog barking, this obscure part of the brain called the insular cortex. Like, before this research was done, there were three and a half people on Earth who ever cared about the insular cortex. What does it do in, like, mammals out there? You're like some guinea pig and you've bitten into some piece of food that is rotten and fetid and toxic and poisonous. And what happens is this insular cortex activates in like a tenth of a second and it triggers all this reflexive stuff. You gag, you spit it out, your stomach heaves, maybe you throw up. What's the insular cortex good for? It protects you from gustatory toxins. It protects you from like disgusting toxic food. And this is like a great thing to have evolved. And like that works that way in us. You take some volunteer and you give them some rants or something to bite into while they're in a brain scanner. And a tenth of a second later, the insular cortex is activated. But in us, as an additional thing, we activate the insular cortex when we hear about a disgusting thing, a morally disgusting act. We activate the, I feel sick to my stomach that's leaving a bad taste in my mouth. I feel like puking when we hear about moral transgressions in addition to like biting into rotten food. This is like unprecedented. Um, Like, whoa, you give like a mammal something disgusting to eat, they turn on the insular cortex. Whoa, you sit somebody down and you tell them about like what's happening in refugee camps in Yemen and you turn on the same part of the brain. This is totally bizarre. This is actually kind of useful because like sometimes if you want to write a major wrong, you're not going to do it by like writing essays and giving lectures. You got to go out and do something. This is like what gives you sort of that fire in your belly to go out and try to affect change because 
there's a fire in your belly, it turns your stomach to know that they're getting away with that. So we've got this weird confusion between being disgusted by sensation and being disgusted by somebody's economic viewpoint or theology. And your brain, the insular cortex, has trouble keeping them separated. So here's the study. Take people and they fill out some questionnaire about their political views, about social issues and geopolitical issues and economic issues and all of that. And some people are leaning left, some right, whatever. Now, instead, a person sits in a room and there's this disgusting smell of like rank garbage in there. And on the average, people become more conservative in their questionnaires. Whether you start off way to the left or way to the right, on the average, people get more conservative, not about, you know, what our trade balance with Zimbabwe should be, not about just about those people. Those people do stuff differently than you. Is it okay or not? And if you're sitting there and you have subliminally a rotten smell in there and your insular cortex is all crazed, you're sitting there and you are more likely to say, you know what, when they do that, that's not only different, that's disgusting. That's a disgusting way to love someone. That's a disgusting way to think what the afterlife is going to be. That's a disgusting any such thing. And... That just puts you a hop, skip, and a jump away from saying it's disgusting and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Like viscera, sensory disgust is just this portal for getting into the more abstract versions of disgust and hatred. And like you look at, like you look at some of the worst bits of like intergroup conflict and all of that. And it's very rarely nothing but they think about the purpose of life in a deontological way instead of a utilitarian way. It's, God, they eat disgusting food. God, that is repulsive when they have this ritual. That's where it starts off. And from there, then it's easy to get into the more abstract stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm kind of adding a lot of this together. It's it sort of, I remember at the beginning of, of COVID, um, a lot of people, including myself, people would be like, did I already, did I have COVID already? I remember like when I first heard about COVID, my eyes started getting dry and watery and I'm noticing a scratch in my throat and, and there's all this kind of nocebo priming that happens of uh I, it happened to me two two weeks ago i went to i i've been i've been um uh, on the very cautious side of of things through all of covid i've gone i've i've made it through without getting covid so far and i was at a small game night recently days later turns out one of the guys had a had a uh had covid and so, you know, we all needed to go and get tested before I even got tested. It was just, I could just feel it firing up like, oh my gosh, do my lungs normally feel this way? Is my heart beating differently? You know, is my sinuses feel off right now. And, and I, I was, it was a negative test and it was all, but what, what happens when 
you just prime an entire globe <laughs> with with uh, uh, you know ideas of of disgust and and disease. <laughs> For one thing, you filter experience around you, so it tends to confirm that you're correct, sort of uh, echo chamber kind of stuff. Um, but what that's telling you is a lot of the time, what's happening in your brain is being influenced by what's happening outside in your body. And what's happening in your body is being run by all sorts of implicit subliminal stuff going on in your brain and just as like the simplest example of this you look at the wiring of how pain works in your spinal cord and like an electrician could make sense of this it's like something bad happens to some part of you out there and a signal goes in it goes to your spine it goes up your spine and goes to the right parts of your brain and like there you go that's how you know you're in pain but it turns out your brain sends all sorts of projections down the spinal cord, regulating how sensitive those pathways are. And what's that explaining? We're in the middle of like some totally fun soccer game or something, and somebody bites your arm off, and it's so much fun that you don't even notice that it hurts. The downward signaling from the brain, and that's a really positive state, can blunt pain. On the other hand, say if you're totally phobic about dentists, you walk into the dentist's office and the music makes your teeth hurt. In other words, there's <laughs> sensation, but there's also perception, and it's our interpretation of it. And our brain can do some really screwy things with what we perceive the world around us to be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so a global pandemic is inherently going to have a, a lack of control, a lack of predictability. Maybe over time we start to get used to like, okay, a new variant comes. We have to behave in a certain way. There's maybe a peak. It goes, maybe we gain a little predictability over time. It sure doesn't feel quite like that to me just yet, but, um, but, so, so you already have that stressor. You have, you have the priming of of uh, disease on our perception, and then you have all of these novel things, which a, a lot of uh, kind of when, when we talk about disease making someone more conservative, it's 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 also just that's kind of another way of saying just a lower threshold for ambiguity and different things and yeah. novelty and a higher need for closure. And then you introduce all of these new counterintuitive things. Like everyone looks strange in a mask. They're not the most comfortable thing in the world. There's nothing intuitive about, about injecting yourself with a, a flu. I, I donate blood all the time. And every time I do it, I still need to like go through a mental process <laughs> of, of, you know, getting ready to accept the needle. So there's asymptomatic spread that are, that we didn't evolve, uh, uh, kind of the disease yeah. cues to pick up on, which is going to theoretically lead to a lot of, uh, cognitive dissonance and maybe coming up with odd yeah. stories to uh to make sense of this and then you have all of these um the these uh, like these new policies implemented i know in my town um when they when they installed the first roundabout 
um, the uh, you know the the circular rotaries, the circular intersection. It was it just broke people's brains. It it was the, there was social upheaval. You know, the government just wants us spinning in circles and all of these things. And there's there's if you don't break, there's videos. It ha- even happened in my town, or people. People just literally don't even see it and just dukes a hazard right over the, <laughs> the over the round because policymakers know like, oh, this happened in Europe and we know once we implement it, this is this works really well with traffic. But no one's ever uh, like I heard the Native Americans didn't see Europeans coming on the ships. They were just arriving at the shore, like consciousness painted over the the possibility <laughs> of there being ships. And that's what roundabouts are like. And and there's there's no policymakers aren't going door to door, handing out pamphlets and explaining this to people. And 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 so this is just this is just a roundabout this is just changing an intersection in a way that's novel and no one's ever seen everyone's used to the x or the t intersection and no one's seen a circle before they aren't prepared for it and why is there two lanes why are we putting a fast lane in this thing and and that's just changing the construction of an intersection in a in a small town yeah (laughs) now try the last two years instead. Um, it's great that you brought up a key word there, uh, which is ambiguity. Yeah, Like risk is risky. And we're all willing to take risks at times. And some of us are more risk averse and more risk addictive and like huge variability. And like, basically, there's some circumstance where everyone enjoys risk. And at the other extreme, there's some where everyone finds it aversive. Ambiguity is something different. Ambi- okay, here's risk. Like they sit you down and they say, here in this bucket, there's 100 marbles. 50 of them are red, 50 of them are blue. Uh, close your eyes and reach in and pick one of them. And here's the deal. If you pick a red one, you're going to get a huge reward. And if you pick a blue one, we're going to beat you senseless and dump you in the alleyway. So do you want to take a chance or not? And some people do, some people don't. Depends on what your risk threshold is. Like that's what risk is about. Here's what ambiguity is about. You sit the person down and you say, okay, here in this bucket, there's a hundred marbles. At least one of them is red. At least one of them is blue. Pick a red one, you're going to get rewarded. Pick a blue one, we'd be too senseless. Now what? And everybody hates it. Everybody gets much more, even though it's the exact same on a logical level, it's a 50-50 chance, but with the red and blue, it's a 50-50 chance always. With this, it could be anywhere from a 1% chance to a 99% chance that just happens to average out to 50%. And it blows people's fuses. Nobody is an ambiguity junkie. Everyone finds it aversive. The insular cortex, all the dis-ease parts of the brain activate like crazy. And that's what the last two years have been. If you want to know like what your risk is for driving while drunk, you can track it down, down to like your age group and demographic and all that. And you can find out how risky it is or how likely you are to get polio if you get a polio vaccine. But we've just spent the last two years not being told what the risks are, instead being told, we don't know. 
We don't know. Who can tell? There's this invisible stuff. It could be anywhere. It could be everywhere. It could be on the surfaces. It could be in the water coming out of your... And ambiguity just blows the fuses of every organism out there. Last two years has been about ambiguity, and that's like lack of control and lack of predictability exponentially on steroids kind of thing. Um, what... Uh this is this is a little bit of a jump, and then I'm I'm going to go back into this through line. But it, one thing I I took a, a let's see a little over fall of 2020 I took a, a you let me sit in in a class of yours. Uh, uh, what was the name of the class? It was um, about age mechanisms of neuron death. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I I got to I was. Uh, poorly equipped for such an advanced class so i just got to sit in awe of of a bunch of brilliant minds trying to make the uh the world a better place uh, but i i remember some speculation about what what covid was doing to the brain um even at that time over a year ago uh do you have uh, uh, do you have thoughts some new insights since that time that that maybe the general public wouldn't think about or know well, uh, the effects are going to be long, long term. Um, there's a whole literature by now, a whole literature, there's a whole lifetime of anecdotes supporting the fact that what happens to you early in life has something to do with the sort of adult you're going to be and adversity early in life makes for a more fragile or more vulnerable or more inappropriately reactive adult sort of thing. So the impact on kids, like they've had two years of being taught just how much the world can throw uncontrollable stuff at you and just how bad it could be. So that's going to be forming lifelong sort of consequences. Um, people of any age group, young adults, I, 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 I grew up with like my parents went through the depression and I remember when I was like 20 in college and they would do something just crazy making about something, usually with money. And I'd be saying, oh my God, they're being impossible. Oh, don't forget when they were my age, it was the depression. And I'm willing to bet the college students right now, 30 years from now, when their kids are in college and bitching and moaning about how impossible and crazy their parents are about this and that, there's going to be a Oh, yeah. They were my age during COVID. That's why they're so, so – this is going to leave long-term everything. There's a gigantic literature showing, like, if you spend one trimester of your fetal life being starved, 60 years later, you are more at risk for diabetes, 40 years later, you were more at risk for major depression. 20 years later, you're more at risk for schizophrenia. And people know, like, this stuff leaves long-term changes. I mean, stress changes the regulation of your genes in your brain, and some of those changes can be lifelong. We're going to be seeing the consequences of this for a long, long time to come, especially for the have-nots who predictably have been hammered the most by this disaster. Hmm. So what can, um, kind of going back to that, uh, that 
a Jamie Pennebaker example of of you know is something a a therapist can maybe cue into and notice in a in a patient to um, uh, potentially prime them um, out of their uh, out of being um, kind of overly introspective, inappropriately introspective, and kind of stuck in that state. What uh, what research is there in terms of unlearning? helplessness in terms of what can we look for as cues in ourselves that we're experiencing helplessness or people that we care about or our coworkers or whatever signs that they might be experiencing helplessness and and what can be done to start kind of establishing a, a more of a feeling of predictability and control in one's life i i know uh i know that in the history of, of pandemics there, one of the positive outcomes sometimes is that a, a lot of people will, especially early on, start getting in shape and taking better care of themselves because it gives them a, a feel, a lot more of a feeling of predictability and control, uh, even as the world is falling apart or whatever. It's something that is within their hands to change. So, uh, yeah, I would love to hear your take on unlearning helplessness. Uh. Well, this one's going to be an uphill battle. Um, I mean, one of the hallmarks of learned helplessness, once again, a rat or a monkey or a human, you start off, there's some unpleasant task, but you've mastered it so you could prevent it from happening. And suddenly it doesn't work anymore. You try to do all the usual things and it doesn't work anymore. And you get frantic and anxious and hit the button 400 times instead of the usual two times. That's sort of the anxiety stage that hits. But then eventually you give up. You've become learned helpless. That's sort of the transition from anxiety to depression. You give up and the really, really toxic thing about learned helplessness is even if the lever starts working again, even if the task is just as controllable as it used to be, you don't recognize it. You don't even bother trying or you try it and you don't even notice that it's working or you notice that it's working, but you say, but what's the use? It's not going to continue working. It's just going to stop again like last time. And you can't even see the efficacy that's available. You can't see it returning. That's where the distortive stuff really does you in. Because the bad stuff is stopping bad. And what learned helplessness is about is you're not going to be able to see that. And you're not going to be able to have a sense of control and efficacy when you actually do. That's like hellishly difficult to overcome. And that, you know, one of the big challenges of like every type of therapy out there. And, you know, not only to give people efficacy, um, let's figure out how you could, in your workplace, deal better with your boss wasting your time with interruptions. Here's industrial psychology say, tell the boss, wow, I so value your input. Let's, let's pick a half hour every week for you to tell me instead of showing up all the time and like wasting my time with your, okay, let's engineer the system so that you have more control. Um, but then there's also how do you engineer the system so that you see that you have the control and take comfort from it and begin to trust it after a while. And that's a much tougher task in lots of ways because this biology stuff, 
stuff leaves footprints that last for a long time. So I think for lots of people here, it's going to be a very, very slow return to normal, um, perhaps even long after normal is actually normal again. Um, mm. We're going to be carrying this for a long time. Mm. Is there... Are there any techniques that that have been shown to uh, help help that thing relearn that the lever's working again? Yeah, hell if I know. I mean, do yeah. you, you've you've got the wrong person on. What I'm mostly good for <laughs> is telling you just how bad it's going to be if you don't get that under control. What how to actually get it control? I think one yeah. of the things. I mean, just to just to go in the like nuts and bolts direction. So, like, what's the leading antidepressant, Prozac? It's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI. There's a whole class of them. What is Prozac good at? One of the features of depression is exactly what you brought up before, this tendency to just ruminate on the bad stuff and get lost in it. And stickiness, a great term in the field, viscous negative affect where your feet just keep getting gummed up on this like carpet of bad feelings and <laughs> like you're trying to figure out how to get your foot up from this like velcro misery there you're not going to be able to notice that the sun is suddenly outshining all of that what does prozac what do these ssris do it fumfers with this neurotransmitter serotonin and it makes rumination less sticky you don't get stuck in these thought patterns just as much. Mm. And that's a first important step for being able to notice that the sun is out, if it's actually come out. And what that also explains is something interesting as well. Okay, depression, disease of distorted cognition, it's also a disease of rumination. You're just spending so much time thinking about what if the awful happens. Then there's another psychiatric disease, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, where you spend a whole lot of time stuck on thinking, what if I didn't actually mail the letter? What if I didn't turn the gas off on the oven before we left? What if I, you're stuck in a totally different world of ruminating. You're ruminating on like making sure the pencils are all parallel to each other before you start the exam, but it's another version of stickiness. Prozac helps with OCD rumination as well. It just makes a brain less sticky and whatever that means down on like the molecular level, God knows. But that tells you insofar as that's one of the most effective treatments out there for depression, that's one of the ones that it makes it easier. You're not spending the whole time cleaning the dog poop off of your shoes because it's everywhere and you can't get out of it. And instead, you can finally look up and say, ah, you know, actually, things are getting better. And I did X and good outcome Y actually happened. And that didn't, and that's like a first insight into the sort of brain chemistry of the, how do you tell when it's over with? How do you tell when you don't have to be helpless anymore? Because you aren't helpless anymore. Hmm. Um. I uh, well, I I have to let you go, but I do want to. Could I get you back on when when your new book comes out and and sure. have a chat about uh, free will, etc. Um. It, what what's the book that you're working on right now? Well, it's mostly been this book that I'm not working on. That's that's been <laughs> what the last two years of the the why bother. 
uh, has mostly done me in and getting this this book finished. But what it's mostly looking at is, you know, you go back to my where we started, why did that behavior occur? Because of what happened a second ago and a minute ago and an hour ago and when you were fetus and what your ancestors did. And you spend enough time thinking that way. And one thing that's absolutely clear is like free will is a myth. It's total nonsense. There is no such thing as free will. (laughs) All we are is the biology beyond our control, interacting with the environment beyond our control, and like there's no free will. So great. I personally have actually thought this way since I was about 14, fully believing intellectually there's no free will whatsoever. But at the same time, oh my God, how in hell are you supposed to function if you actually think this way and feel this way, what's the world supposed to look like if everybody started deciding that blame and praise and reward and punishment and responsibility and judgment, that all of these are words that make as little sense as like words like alchemy or witchcraft? Like, what if everybody actually started thinking that way? How are we supposed to function? So the book is the so far really flailing attempt at trying to think, what are the implications of not only us having no free will, but of the implications of people actually beginning to recognize that we have no free will? So big surprise. I'm not getting stuff done very quickly because (laughs) it's not obvious what the answer is. But yeah, I... I'd be happy to if the damn thing ever gets itself finished. Uh, I would love that. I, I, I think we'd have a great conversation um, about it. One of, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. So, yeah, you, you were fantastic. Thank you so much, Robert Sapolsky, for joining me. You're such a fantastic guest. Thanks for all the work that you do. Your writing's incredible. All of, uh, all of your lectures online and everything are incredibly inspiring as, as someone who... Uh, is is into science communication but also as a as a stand-up comedian i i i i pick up some delivery tricks from from you <laughs> as well you have a you have a better delivery than uh than many professional comedians out there uh so you're you're a fantastic communicator i appreciate what you do and thanks for joining me today oh good thanks for having me on take care of yourself Yeah, you as well. And thank you, listener, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, As promised, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a Robert Sapolsky starter pack if you're you're new to Robert Sapolsky. Um, So, uh, first of all... uh, shameless shameless self-promotion i had him on one other time before as i mentioned episode 122 Uh, you can go back and listen to that from five years ago more recently um so if if you happen to stumble upon this show because uh you're like me a sapolsky fan and you just go and find any video that you can or whatever else anything that you can find him on and you stumbled upon this show Hello, my name is Shane Moss. I've been a comedian for 17 years. I started comedy, had a little bit of, uh, caught a few breaks in the traditional route of like doing late night and things like that that were important at the time before the age of podcasting. And once the age of podcasting came along and and people started uh, doing long form things and expressing more of their genuine interests, 
uh, I've, I've started um, using all of the touring I was doing as a comedian uh, to use the opportunity to explore my my curiosity in science and reading pop science books and stuff. So I look up local universities everywhere I went and, and start finding guests on a zillion random subjects. And so Ben, uh, this is the eighth year of the show. Um, and th- this is my this is my science show. I started this as a hobby as just like another outlet that would be separate from comedy. And, you know, we have some laughs and everything else, but I consider it a science show and more and more those things can uh, continue to um, combine. I, I, I started doing um, live shows, combining comedy and science. And then uh, lately I started a show called mind under matter that is like a lot of me blabbing about science with one of my favorite people on planet earth uh the very very funny and talented uh, ramin nazer who's uh you may know from popular instagram artist but a hilarious comedian as well and we talk a lot about big ideas and in fun um silly ways we did an episode that was when when robert was talking in the the beginning of the the show about the uh kind of the the buckets of categorization and science and uh when sort of looking at a behavior the uh the interdisciplinary approach of understanding what happened the moment before in the brain going back through uh, what hormones were circulating in the body, going back to what the last year of your life is like, your your childhood, your prenatal environment, your culture, your uh, your ancestors, and and the uh, uh, the the genes that that were shaped over time uh, that gave rise to you. We we got into that in depth a couple months ago, episode forty two behaviors past. So if you want to hear that in kind of a, a more fun, looser format, uh, you can. I forgot pancreas. about the pancreas. Yeah, I've got one knows. and it's doing stuff and I forgot that it even is a thing. I was like kidney, yeah. stomach, liver, intestines. That's everybody on the bus. Let's get out of here. And now I'm like, where's Kevin? And pancreas is the Kevin. And it's like waiting at home like this. Okay. So now Robert Sapolsky's stuff. Number one, um, his his probably most popular work is uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Fantastic book all about stress, all about the mismatches with our modern environment and how our stress response wasn't built for the chronic stressors that we face today. A relatively stressful book to read. <laughs> I found it to be while I was reading it, but also one of the most important books that I've ever read. And uh, also written with such um, levity and humor, he's just one of the one of the best communicators and funniest science writers out there as well. And uh, coupled with just an insane amount of knowledge from a incredible career, uh, just the best. And then uh, so so that's that's his most famous stuff. Uh, I maybe. Maybe start there. Um, if you want something really light, he has his autobiography, A Primate's Memoir, uh, Neuroscientist's Unconventional Life. Um, and that's 
super funny, super fascinating, easy read with some mind blowing lessons along the way. Highly recommend it. it um, again, if you want, if you want something accessible, but also combining science, there's the trouble with testosterone and other essays on biology, uh, which is like a great bathroom reader. It's a few pages. Um, at a time. He has another similar one, which I haven't read some major blind spot guys, monkey love and other essays on our lives as animals. Um, and then uh, my like one book in a, on a desert Island, assuming that um, you don't need a book on how to survive on a desert Island or something. Um, the, his latest book behave which we mentioned, the biology of humans at our best and worst, is uh, it's a it's a slower read. It's it's if you're um, I have a range of listeners uh, to this show, so you know if you're a scientist and listening, um, yeah, get into it. If you're uh, if if you're new to reading science stuff, that might be a, a a, a little bit more of a challenging read for for the first one of his work, but just incredible, uh, just a summary of just nearly everything you need to know about our existence as as humans, if you ask me, um, at, at least contained within one book. Um so those are good. Another another awesome resource is um he has a life-changing class. If if you've never seen him lecture before, uh before there was uh the the popularity of online courses today, they just set up a camera and recorded his classes in Stanford. Uh, that are free on YouTube, uh, human behavioral biology courses. I'll put links to all of this stuff on YouTube, by the way. Um, and then uh, those are those are really good. And, um, you know, he has students in the class too, so you can hear them laughing and interacting and stuff. So I, I highly recommend that. And then if you, if you're really, um, just uh if after that you just can't get enough of hearing um robert lecture like me uh he has two two or three different courses on course era um uh, course back when i did ads for this show course era used to sponsor this show but there's tons of awesome um places out there and by the way you're probably wondering well how do you sustain this podcast without ads i decided not to do ads um i when i started the show i didn't want to do ads kind of got talked into it and then during covid i got so fed up with all the crap everyone was hawking and taking advantage of the situation and and pressure to sell supplements and financial debt relief this and that from uh from networks that i said enough with it it just wasn't it wasn't worth it they're annoying they're stupid. Um, so if you want to support this ad-free content, head over to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Where does that money go? 
like 95% of that money goes to just paying the cost, paying my editor to work hard to clean it. You have no idea how, uh, how loud and distracting the original audio from this recording, uh, was, you know, did, did, uh, uh, I, I was happy he was on the show. I wasn't going to complain and reschedule or, or anything like that. But all of that is to say that my editor, Matt McCool, real name, um, is uh, worked so hard uh, to uh, uh, put in extra time. I paid him double to do this one. We got we even bought a different program to, for AI to go through and get rid of sounds and Everything else I care about putting out is the best quality product that I can. So if you want to support this show and my journey in trying to get people from all sorts of different disciplines and have these fun, casual conversations about their work, please consider going to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. I think if you consider uh, the value that this podcast has and listening to these wonderful folks in your life and think of a monetary value on that and give me a little fraction of that it will help out the show um no pressure no guilt trips here but just want you to know that it's absolutely appreciated i have a bunch of episodes in the bank not sure what's coming out next week we have a couple fun science communication episodes that are already recorded, and um, we have a we have a, a another um, an, another kind of um, debunking of uh, misinformation and um, grifters uh, in science episode coming out. Trying to space those out some so um, it doesn't get uh, too redundant, but timely issue and um yeah i'm i'm just i hope you guys enjoyed this show i'm just so thrilled that i i got a a chance to talk with my hero robert sapolsky so i hope you guys enjoyed listening those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites